Matthew chapter 15, I'll begin reading at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre in Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Lord Jesus, we just love you. We cherish you. We thank you for your holy and precious word. Have your way with us now, Lord. Speak to us exactly what we need to hear from the message today, Lord. Bless the pastor, Lord, as he speaks. Give him great joy that overflows and makes your word come alive. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a crazy year, not just the pandemic, which is, of course, on our minds all the time, but a summer and a fall of strife, racial hatred, violence, destruction. When will this happen? Revelations chapter 7, verse 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes, all peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When will it happen that we'll all worship together? Without any distinction of class, rich or poor, of caste or of race or of nation or of ethnicity. God's answer is Christmas. God's answer is Christmas. And I'd like you to look with me at this text in Matthew chapter 15 because it has a peculiar statement of Jesus. I'd like to spend a few weeks looking at Jesus' own words about why he came, why Christmas. And he gives here an answer which is a little unsettling. We'll be looking at what happened here, but verse 24, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Does this mean Jesus only came for one race? Was he a nationalist? Was he a racist, in fact? How do we answer this question? How does Jesus himself answer the question about why he came and for whom he came? So I'd like to look at it in terms of three people in history, David, Abraham, and then Jesus. David, Abraham, and Jesus. Let's first turn to David, who is mentioned prominently in this little dialogue that Jesus had with this woman in the text that was read. Jesus was in Tyre and Sidon, which is north of Israel in what we would now call Lebanon. It's a non-Israelite, non-Jewish area, a Gentile area. Jesus had interestingly used this area as an example, as a positive example, to denounce 
his own region, the region of Galilee and the cities that were in there. It's quite interesting. It was in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, beginning at verse 20 and on. He looks to the cities of Chorazon, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, which were his hometown. That's his own stomping grounds. And he says, you saw all these miracles. You saw the wonders of who I am and my teaching, and you did not repent. And then he said something interesting. He said, if these miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon, the very place where this woman lives, they would have repented long ago. And then he says, it'll be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you. Remarkable statement. Actually, it's a very profound statement. Because he's saying, one day we'll all stand before our creator, every race. There's no high or low. We'll all be there. And he's saying, now which identity do you think will matter? We talk a lot about identity. What's my identity these days? Which identity will matter? Will it matter what your nationality is, what your race is? Will it matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile? Jesus says no. And he makes this audacious claim. He says, the only thing that will matter then is how we responded to him. Interesting. Fascinating and also a little bit frightening. But then why did Jesus say what he says to this poor mother who's pleading for her daughter, beginning at verse 21? Who is she? It says, verse 22, and a Canaanite woman from the region came. There's no name given, interestingly. She's called a Canaanite. Actually, Mark adds that she was a Syrophoenician. All we know is her race. Actually, interestingly, it's the way we identify people still, isn't it? Race is still the identifier more often than we want to admit. But that's her identity. But is it true that race was the most important thing about this woman? And the answer is no. As you read this little interaction with Jesus, you see that that's not at all the most important thing. In fact, it was her faith. She begins this interaction with Jesus with this little phrase. She says, Son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Son of David, she calls him. She knew the promises of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that one would come from King David, the glorious king of Israel, and this one would sit on an eternal throne. This one would be king forever. He would be the Messiah. These promises are given in several places, but prominently in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter. And she recognized Jesus then as the fulfillment of these promises to David, that he was the one that was going to be eternally king, true king, that he was the Messiah. So then why did Jesus say what he said? Why did he say in the next verse, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, verse 24 in Matthew chapter 21. Why did he say that? Is it true that he came only for the Jews? Well, the truth is that Jesus' ministry began with the Jews. We know that. But its impact would finally be worldwide. And the Gospels themselves say that. So his words to her were not because of race. He wasn't saying, I only care about one nationality. I only care about one race. Because, in fact, as you look at Matthew's Gospel itself, we see in the 8th chapter of Matthew, that he healed a Roman centurion's servant. So a Gentile, not a Jew. And in fact, 
an oppressor, the Romans. And he healed that servant. So it wasn't as though he was restricting himself to that. In fact, he mentioned that this Roman centurion's faith was greater than any he had seen in Israel. Remarkable statement. And now he's healing a Canaanite woman. And you remember in John chapter 4, he had this wonderful offer of living water, of life-giving water to a Samaritan woman. So he certainly had a ministry outside of Israel. So why then this harsh statement? Well, there's several harsh things about this. And, you know, the very metaphor he uses is in verse 26, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And it sounds like, what is he talking about? And we have to understand that this is really said in an Eastern context. And I think that's the only way to really understand that this is not really a harsh conversation and he's not really shooing her away or kicking her away the way you might a wild dog. She recognizes his authority and status as a rabbi. Because of that, it wouldn't be proper for her to argue with him as an equal the way we might. I mean, we would say, what do you mean you're talking to me like that? You can't use language like that to me. I have rights, you know. That's not the way it would be done in an Eastern culture. She would approach him humbly and probably use his own words to make her own point. And then she would leave it to him to come to the final conclusion. My dad, quite traditional Indian dad, I think was like this. And I remember once we were walking in Minneapolis and we walked by this restaurant. Remember the name of it? Nan King, a Chinese restaurant. And he was very hungry. The aromas were coming from the restaurant. It was quite late in the evening. And he says, why don't we just stop here and eat? Now, we didn't do that very often, so it was pretty mm, tempting for me. But I remembered that just before we left, my mother had said that she was cooking this big, huge meal. So now what do I do? What do I say to my dad? I can't tell him that he's forgetful. I can't tell him something that would contradict what he's saying. So I would say something like, oh yeah, that sounds wonderful. I'm sure on the long ride home, we'll build up enough hunger to enjoy what mom is cooking too. And then you just leave it to him to figure out what I'm trying to say that, yeah, probably not a great idea. But it's in his hands. And I think that's what's happening with this woman. She understood the parable perfectly that Jesus had a priority to come to Israel first. I'll mention why in just a moment. And she used Jesus' own words to make her point. She said in verse 27, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. In fact, it's fascinating here that she understood the parable. Commentators have mentioned this, that the disciples often didn't understand the parables of Jesus. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus tells a parable and the disciples say, Could you explain this to us? We don't understand it. And apparently, this is the very first time in the Gospels, where someone actually answers Jesus from within his own parable. That is, using the metaphor and the language of the parable, showing that she completely understood what Jesus was talking about in order to make her point. And Jesus recognized that she had true faith. So he says in verse 28, Oh woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. The O, by the way, which is in the New American Standard Bible, is left out of the NIV. It expresses the fullness of what Jesus was saying. You know, he recognized something and it was said with 
emotion. Oh, woman, how great is your faith. You understand exactly what I'm saying and you understand who I am and you trust it. So then the question again, was Jesus only for Israel? What we see as we proceed in the gospel is that, yeah, he came and then he was crucified and then he rose again from the dead and he declared plainly that this was for the whole world, for every nation, for every race. In fact, you remember in the beginning I read from Luke chapter 2 where the angel said that his coming would mean peace for all people. Soon after he was born in Luke 2, we see that the little baby is brought to the temple and there's this old man who's been waiting for the Messiah, Simeon. And when Simeon held the little baby boy, he said, this was going to be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Right from the beginning, people knew that there was more that was coming, that more was going to blossom out of this. So the limitation was, you might say now, at that point in Jesus' ministry, before the crucifixions. Why? Well, because the scriptures were entrusted to Israel, and Israel was like a nursery in which the Messiah would be born. The people of Israel had entrusted to them the scriptures, and the scriptures defined who the Messiah would be. For example, in the scriptures we find out who God the Creator really is. And so when the Messiah came and told us that he was the creator incarnate, God incarnate, we would understand what he meant. We would understand how to know whether that was true. What's more, the scriptures told us the prophecies, the description of where the Messiah would be born, the character of his ministry, what would happen to him. That he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be crucified, that he would be buried with the rich, and that he would rise again from the dead. So that we could confirm the one who claimed to be the Messiah. So Jesus had to be born in that nursery, in that context of Israel, in order for us to understand that he really was the Messiah. But those same prophecies, the same Old Testament scriptures, said that ultimately the Messiah would be for all the nations of the world. For example, Isaiah is quoted in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 12, verse 17 and on. It says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen... My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And then it goes on, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. In his name the Gentiles will hope. Begins in Israel, but then it blossoms into the whole world. That was the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Son of David. So we began with David, but that takes us to the next word, Abraham. Because there was another promise, actually, before David. And that was made to Abraham. Abraham was promised that he would be the means of blessing for all nations through one who would come from his offspring. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, it says, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just Israel, not just one race or nation, but everybody will be blessed. It was repeated again, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. In your seed, and by the way, the New Testament makes a big deal of that, that there's a coming one, a Messiah, his seed. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Who was this seed? It wasn't really Isaac, his son. It wasn't Ishmael. It wasn't the other six sons that were born to Abraham later, but it was really talking about the Messiah who was coming. It was talking about Jesus. 
In fact, Jesus explained that the real descendants of David are none of those sons or daughters that were born to Abraham, but it's those who share the faith of Abraham. In other words, Jesus said, it's not physical descendants that count, but it's spiritual descendants of Abraham who are members of the family of God. And so this Phoenician women that we encountered in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, is an example of a child of Abraham. She had a faith like Abraham. Just as Abraham believed God about the coming Messiah, so she believed in Jesus as the Messiah, the son of David. Those were the real sons and daughters of Abraham. It's very interesting that Jesus uses this expression. For example, in Luke chapter 13, verse 16 in particular, a woman came to Jesus and she was bent over. You know, something wrong with her back. She couldn't straighten out, couldn't walk. I don't know, what label would you put on a woman like that? You know, we have labels for people like that, don't we? You know what label Jesus gave her? He said she was a genuine daughter of Abraham. A daughter of Abraham indeed, depending on how it's translated. Why? Because she had faith in the Messiah. That's all that counts. Zacchaeus, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, an extortioner, a traitor to his own people. You know, he sided with the evil Romans to extort money from his people. But he came to faith in Jesus. He trusted him. And you know what Jesus called him? The label, the identity, a true son of Abraham. Here is the son of Abraham indeed. So it began with David, but the impact was always going to be for all nations. So then why now? This is before the cross. Our text is before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is he blessing this Syrophoenician woman who is not an Israelite, who is not a Jew? I think you'll see that in the scriptures, these boundaries are blurred. It's kind of like the grace of God overflows those boundaries. I think of this like popcorn. I don't know, have you ever popped popcorn? I don't mean in a microwave, because you put it in a microwave, you have no idea what's happening, right? But if you have a pan, you put, I don't know, butter or oil in it, then you put the kernels in, and then you put it on the heat and you begin to shake the pan a little bit. And what happens? Well, nothing. For a long time, nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, some lone kernel pops, and then nothing. Nothing happens. And then another little kernel pops, and then nothing. But what are they telling you? They're telling you that something big is about to happen, isn't it? Because then a few seconds later, oh man, they all start to pop. The whole pan is filled with this white fluffy popcorn spilling out of the pan. That's what this was. This healing, this grace shown to this Phoenician woman was a sign of what is coming. Just as the grace that Christ showed to the Roman centurion, Matthew 18, was a sign of what was coming. It was popcorn that was popping ahead of its time, a sign of something, a grace that was going to explode. God's blessing for every nation. This was a precursor, because soon all races, it didn't matter what color you were, it didn't matter what language you spoke, what food you ate, that soon all of them would be blessed through this God incarnate born in a manger. So what does identity mean then? We talk a lot about identity, and indeed we have to, don't we? We all have an identity. But Jesus is saying here that the identity that matters is not your race, not your nationality, but whether or not you have the faith of Abraham, whether or not you're a child of Abraham, whether or not 
You have the faith that Abraham had in the Messiah and who we now know to be Jesus Christ. Probably the first thing we think about when we think about our identity is the thing that's most important to us, right? The thing we talk about the most. It determines who we associate with. Maybe it determines how we dress. determines what we believe about ourselves and how we interact with the world. I wonder what the most important thing to you is. What's your identity? What's the thing that determines how you interact with the world? When our first daughter was born, we were in a class. First-time parents learning what the process of labor and delivery would be like. And, you know, I think there was like half a dozen other couples in there. And we got to know each other pretty well. But I have no idea what those people did for their jobs. I have no idea what their politics were. I have no idea where they lived because none of that mattered. The only thing that mattered for us was what we had in common was that we were going to have our first babies. And that's all we talked about. That was our identity, first-time parents. Whatever is most important to you is what determines your identity. And there are some things that are so much a part of who we are, so foundational to who we are, that all the other identities vanish in importance in comparison to that. And Jesus said the identity that matters, that drowns out every other identity, is whether or not we're a spiritual son or daughter of Abraham, whether or not we have faith in Jesus. So every race, every nation, every tribe has those who are children of Abraham, and every race, tribe, nation has those who are not children of Abraham. There are those who are blessed of God because they have faith in the Messiah, and they have those who are not blessed of God. So here's a Phoenician woman in our text, and this woman is Blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ, her faith is commended. 800 years earlier, there was another Phoenician woman. She was, in fact, royalty. She was a princess, a Phoenician princess. And she was wicked. Oh, man, she was cruel. She murdered without a second thought. Her name was Jezebel. And she was judged by God. It's not racial identity that determines where we stand with God. It's our spiritual identity has to do with where we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 says we are one in Christ. There's no Jew or Gentile. Those distinctions vanish into obscurity. So we have different languages, you know, around the world. We enjoy different foods. We love our countries. We love our cultures. But the most important identity, the one that's at the core of our being, the one that's eternally stamped on our souls is that we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize him as the Messiah of God. He's come, the creator incarnate. David, Jesus' ministry began in Israel. Abraham, it was for all the nations, all the families of the world. And that brings us, of course, to the third word, Jesus, who then is, what shall we say, savior to all. Jesus is Savior to all. We're all one in Christ. He binds us together. We have to understand, and I know at this point you go numb because you've heard this so many times, but this is not spiritual mumbo-jumbo. This is practical. This is controversial. People hate this when it's put into practice. Some people love it and are transformed by it. Other people turn against it because it lays bare all the class divisions that keep us apart as human beings. The first Christians, you know, struggled against this gospel message. What do you mean Jews and Gentiles are the same? 
I don't like that. Peter struggled against this. You know, he had an identity. I'm a good Jew. That was what mattered to him. I keep the law. I eat what I'm supposed to eat. I don't eat with people I'm not supposed to eat with. And Gentiles are among that group. I'm not going to eat with a Gentile Roman. In Acts chapter 10, though, God commanded him to go eat. Unclean food with an unclean man. No, no, no. That's not my identity. That's not what I do. It was a struggle for him. And God had to show him that nothing was unclean, that he had cleaned. It reminds us, doesn't it remind you of the segregation in restaurants, hotels, water fountains that was happening in our own country, what, half a century or more ago? I think the same thing was happening back then. Just stay apart. Some people we don't associate with. It's unclean to do so. And it's not just in this country, friends. You look around the world. These distinctions of class and caste and race are in nations all over the world. And it's still in our country in different ways. The rich versus the poor. The upper crust versus the ordinary people. I was listening to a broadcast on the public radio not so long ago. And there was this analyst, I won't mention her name. She's highly paid. And I happen to know by background that she's from a very well-to-do and very politically connected family. A long pedigree, history of political connections. And she was laughing and joking, declaring that she would never be caught dead eating at an Applebee's. That was beneath her, you see. Because she belongs to a different class. And different people eat here and I eat here. It's still there. We divide, we separate. But even though we do that, Jesus unites us. You know, there's some people who at a table will only take a linen napkin to wipe their mouth and other guys will use their sleeves to wipe their mouth. And Jesus says they're both unclean unless they come to him. We don't understand that. There's a greater reality than these distinctions that we make between people and classes. And that's what God showed Peter. There's no higher Peter, there's no lower, there's no clean or unclean in terms of foods or who you eat with as long as they've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great uniter. So friends, the gospel of this Christmas joy that we're talking about is life-changing. It scares people. I could recite histories from many parts of the world where the gospel has been blocked, even by those who claim to be Christians, because it would interfere with their prophets, or it would interfere with what they're trying to do. prominent example of this is the English, who, of course, were involved, along with other countries, in transporting slaves from Africa to the New World, But there were some English who wanted to share the gospel with those who were enslaved in the British West Indies. And they wanted to bring the gospel there, but the slaveholders there were afraid of what the gospel might do, what you might say, what ideas it might put into the heads of the slaves. So the Bible that was finally offered was a severely edited version, published first in 1807. Instead of our 66 books, it had only 14 books. What was missing? Well, for example, gone was a story of God's deliverance of the slaves who were in bondage in Egypt. Gone were verses like Jeremiah 22:13. Woe to him who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Gone were verses like Exodus 21:16, which said that if you kidnap somebody, 
which is, of course, how this whole trade began in Africa. If you kidnapped somebody, the penalty was death. And if you possessed someone who was kidnapped, the penalty was death. What would that have done to the slave trade? And, of course, missing were all the verses like Galatians 3.28, which said, we are all one in Christ. There's no slave and there's no free and that Jesus is Savior to all. See what I mean? This is practical stuff. It changes the way we live. It changes our culture, and it's scary. We have all kinds of solutions that we're hearing about today to the problems that divide us as a society. But friends, Christmas points us to God's solution. Jesus, who is Savior to all, the Prince of Peace. When we all bow before him as the true king, then all our Small identities become irrelevant. They fade because the only thing that matters is that we're people of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we need laws? I think we need laws. The Bible says we need laws to restrain the evil that is in us. But the law can only do so much. You know, the law can push us to eat together. The law can force us to live together and work together. But Jesus does far more. He makes us one family. Jesus makes us call each other, even though we're very different in background, makes us call each other brother and sister. He makes us want to be together, to love to be together. He makes us worship together. I'm absolutely convinced of this. I think all the solutions that we're hearing about around us are bankrupt. They've been tried in so many cultures, so many nations for so many centuries. We need a transformation of the soul. I don't mean we have to ignore problems, but it won't come by violence. It won't come even by reform or by revolution. It'll come through Jesus. I'm absolutely convinced of this. I believe the message of the angels. I bring you good news of great joy, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and he is for all people for all the nations of the world. Amen. Lord Jesus, we love you, we trust you, but we also bow before you as our king. Our chief joy, our great delight is that we are citizens of your kingdom, that you have called us your own, that we bear your name when we call ourselves Christian. Unite your people, Lord, first. And as we love each other, as we Our one, Lord, we pray that out of our unity, the light of Christmas, the light of the gospel message will shine forth. In your holy name we pray it. Amen.